Hey, I'm Dorothy from Redlands, California. Hey, I'm Jared from Minneapolis. Hey, this is Robert from Washington, D.C. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Do it. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Welcome to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week's program was recorded live at the Second City in Chicago. We scoured the streets of Chicago for the best guests, the best comedians, the best musicians. And I think we did a pretty good job. Okay, scoured the streets, not literally. Here's how it actually happened. Uh, I had been talking with Peter Seigel about having him on The Sound of Young America for a long time, and I just basically sent him an email. Now, uh, I will say that uh, he had a good time, and he really appreciated the enthusiastic laughter of our audience. I've come to enjoy your youthful demographic. (laughs) And our other big interview guest is a guy who just emailed me. Uh, The thing is, is when you get an email from a guy that says, Dear Mr. Thorne, I really enjoy your shows. Uh, My name is Colt Cabana. I am a professional wrestler and stand-up comedian based in Chicago. I'm wondering if you might be interested in interviewing me on your upcoming Chicago show. I feel like the only appropriate answer to that question is yes. Anyway, I talked with Colt about what it's like to be a professional wrestler slash stand-up comedian and why he felt like he got less knowledge from college than he did simulated blood sport. My education has really come from the road, being in the wrestling world, but seeing all these carnies in the world of professional wrestling uh, that really can teach you stuff that I believe you can't really learn in college. So, coming up, interviews with Colt Cabana and Peter Sagal. But first, let's go to the stage of the Second City and stand-up comedian Cameron Esposito. Oh, guys. Look at us. Oh, look at... Oh, you're all... You're here. I was bad. I didn't see you there. (laughs) But you look good. You look great, as you well. As you could tell by my haircut, I am a cyclist. (laughs) And for those of you on the radio, I'll describe it kind of short on one side and then a long piece I could braid into a Jedi braid (laughs) if I wanted to attend a convention of some sort. I ride my bike around the streets of Chicago flicking off babies and cutting off ambulances because I own these streets. But I won't ride when it's very cold, you know? Because I'm tough, I'm not crazy, right? Like, when it's very cold, I'll go ahead and I'll take uh, public transit. And I love taking public transit. Because there's always a moment, every time, there's always one, every time you do it, there's always one moment when you just look around and you just go, uh, oh, I'm doing all right. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I'm wearing my pants on my legs. That lady's wearing her pants on her arms. In comparison, I am the victor. But I'll tell you, I was on public transit recently. I had a real stinker of an experience. You know, because I was riding on the train... 
I was on the train. And my girlfriend had been out of town for a week, and then I had been out of town for a week. Not a big deal. Not a huge deal. Two weeks apart. We can hack it, you know? But we're on the train, and we started to just suddenly, you know, get to feeling amorous. You know what I mean? We, you get what I'm saying. We started to just, like, we got, we're just like two 15-year-old kids looking into each other's eyes. You know, and we moved towards each other, and we got to sharing a pole, as you do. And we're sharing this pole, and she just leaned right across, just leaned across the, the tiny spread of atmosphere between us. And just with, with my love for her reflected in her eyes and her love for me reflected in my we just leaned right in and we just she just gave me a, just a just a tiny just a just a touch of a kiss right on the lips but it was a closed mouth kiss it was like uh, two pez dispensers heads clinking together like a <laughs> like it was like two fish jumping in the air and then a rainbow right like it was like it was like two stuffed animals are snuggling and then one of those stuffed animals gets a little fuzz in its mouth like it wasn't an inappropriate, it was a, it was a gorgeous moment of commitment. It was like Disney Channel variety homosexuality TM. Like it wasn't <laughs> boundary breaking. But this woman on the train, and I, she's like in her late 60s or early 70s, and I don't know her ethnicity, but I'm gonna round it up to Polish. She... <laughs> line let's be real with ourselves Chicago you know also she was carrying a lot of meats so I assumed but she looked up at me and she yelled she goes she goes this is a train go home if you want to do that she yelled that at us and I mean here's the thing just took my breath away, you know, because here I am riding this train feeling safe in the world, and then she comes at me with this moment of just cruelty, and also, may I add, regardless of how you might feel about my relationship situation, that is a bad argument. Because this is a train, should never be the beginning of a sentence where you prohibit activities unless you are saying, this is a train, pee less. That makes sense, you could say that, there are no rules on a train, it's like the You didn't bring your dinner jacket? Well, then see the garçon. Like, it's not a fancy place. <laughs> and then to follow it up with go home if you want to do that. I'm on a mode of transportation. That's where I'm going. <laughs> you just instructed me to stay on this train for four more stops. I do live in uh, Logan Square. I'm individually pointing at the four people who also live in Logan Square. I do live in Logan Square. And um, that's for those of you that don't know, that's a very uh, uh, Latino neighborhood here in Chicago. I had somebody make an assumption about me recently. They were way off base. Because I live in Logan Square, but I'm on this party planning committee, right? So I'm on this party planning committee, right? Yeah, I know you knew about it. I'm on this committee, and we're sitting at a table. Everybody's making suggestions for this party that we're planning. And uh, uh, one was like, oh, what do you think this party needs? I stood up. I was like, oh, I think this party needs whack-a-mole. And I stand by that. That's how I want to party. I want to hit animatronic moles on the head with a mallet. Sure. Pizza could be delivered. Let's get crazy. 
But I said that, and another lady on this committee, she made an assumption about me way off base. Because I said, I think this party needs whack-a-mole. And she looked at me, and she said, <laughs> no. <laughs> I believe it's pronounced guacamole. <laughs> just to get into my apartment. I know how to pronounce guacamole. My favorite kind of bagel, jalapeno bagel. Like this lady does not know me at all. You guys have been amazing. I'm Cameron Esposito. Cameron Esposito is based in Chicago. She just released her first comedy album this year. It's called Grab Them a Gas. You can find it in iTunes. It's the Sound of Young America. This week, we're live on tape from the stage of the Second City. When you're booking a celebrity-based show in Chicago, and uh, you can't get Mr. T's agent to return your calls, <laughs> you're, sort of, you're sort of trying to think of creative ideas. Oprah's, we're, Oprah's not realistic. We had Steve Albini on last time. Uh, uh, John Landis was out of town. Wait, no, not John Landis. Who's, who lives in Chicago? Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis was at... See, the fact that you know if I say who lives in Chicago and there's just a, what chorus of a single name comes forth. So I got this email while we were, while we were booking the show. And it said, uh, Dear Mr. Thorne, I'm a big fan of your podcast. Uh, I'm a professional wrestler and stand-up comedian. And I said, Great. Well, looks like we've got a guest. <laughs> I can't imagine something I'd like to interrogate more in the world than someone who is both a professional wrestler and a stand-up comedian. That boggles my mind entirely, uh, even more than the seeing the actual wrestling championship belt backstage. So uh, our next guest on the program has been wrestling professionally for over 13 years. Uh, he's wrestled in uh, the WWE. Um, he does stand-up and improv comedy. He is the National Wrestling Alliance, that's NWA, World Heavyweight Champion uh, as of March of this year. He's the host of a popular wrestling podcast called The Art of Wrestling, and he's the first Sound of Young America guest ever to come to the show with his own theme music, uh, please welcome Colt Cabana. Okay, so I, I feel like I didn't want to talk to you backstage too much because we were backstage we were hanging out with Peter Sagal, and he was asking you all of the dumb questions that someone would ask someone if, when they found out they were a professional wrestler. <laughs> and I felt like I needed to escape because I needed to keep those dumb questions fresh. Let's um, do it. So, I mean, I can, I, I, I can imagine how someone gets interested in professional wrestling, um, because I think, you know, every year uh, millions of, you know, nine through 11-year-old boys uh, get excited about professional wrestling and then they decide they want to be a professional wrestler. Now, when I was nine through 11, I wanted to be uh, Mark Grace, first baseman for the Chicago Cubs. And um, I think I realized that that was not a realistic goal around age 12. 
um, when I couldn't crack the starting lineup of my Little League team. <laughs> so what, like, when did you start to get, how old were you when you decided that you were actually going to get serious about doing it? Uh, I used to do research on the internet when I was like 13. Remember when AOL first started like coming out? And you you know you'd have to sign on and, and or I guess you still have to sign on don't you? Uh, and you just used AOL keyword thirteen year old professional wrestler. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I would do research of wrestling schools in junior high school, and uh, I used to get what they call them, they call them the dirt sheets uh, is like the insider information about professional wrestling, the stuff backstage that nobody's supposed to know. And I was 13 years old, and I was subscribing to these things called the dirt sheets, and I was getting them mailed to my house. I was using my Hanukkah money to subscribe to this. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I started doing research, and I just kept on going, kept on going. And I, my parents said that uh, you have to go to college, and then after college you can go on and become a professional wrestler. And I, and I played, since I had to go to college... I figured that, fine, I'll, I'll go to college and I'll play uh, college football because I kept on watching wrestling and they would always talk about how these guys in wrestling were football players. So I assumed, well, you know, maybe that's my golden ticket into the WWE is college football. Uh, but after a year of college football, I despised it so much and I couldn't take uh, living out my dream. And I said, Mom, I'm 18 years old. I'm a grown-up now. I, I have to go live my dream. And uh, I did. I continued to go through college. I, I, I graduated with a business degree. Uh, but while going through college, I was on the road doing anywhere from two to 15-hour road trips uh, just there. So that would be four to 30-hour road trips, uh, the whole thing. It's a business degree yeah, working right there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, was, it, was, it was a wild trip. And you know, I, I say that I, I've graduated from college, but my education has really come from the road. Uh, and traveling the road and, and wrestling, not only uh, being in the wrestling world, but seeing all these wrestling, these carnies in the world of professional wrestling uh, that really can teach you stuff that I believe you can't really learn in college. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do you, how do you, like, what do you do to learn to be a wrestler? Where, where do you learn to do that? Uh, it's a tr they, they have trade schools all over the, all over the world, really. And uh, I was traveling, uh, I was going to school in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I was traveling back and forth uh, to Chicago, and there was a school here in Chicago, it's no longer around anymore, it was called the Steel Domain, and I would train uh, three to four days a week for about four months until I had my, uh, my first match, and then while I had my first match, I continued to train, and I, I'd actually, I've, I still continue to train to this day. You and your colleagues made this really interesting documentary called The Wrestling Road Diaries, um, that's about what it's like to be sort of a small-scale professional wrestler. And the thing that's, this, that struck me about it was it was like watching, um, you know, it was like watching like a, a Buster Keaton routine or something. Like the, the level of sort of jumping and flipping involved was so intense. Like what do you have to do? Like how, to what extent do you have to be like a guy that looks right in a singlet? <laughs> The beautiful thing about wrestling is that uh, it's art, it's subjective. There's so many different kinds of, of different wrestlers, and it's, uh, you know... Most of them have giant muscles, though. I mean, I don't mean to disabuse you. Uh. True, but that's your, your perception of wrestling, and that's, I guess, the world's perception is now you turn on the World Wrestling Entertainment on television, and you see all these giant guys, and you say, that's professional wrestling. But that's not necessarily uh, my view or my vision of professional wrestling. There's so many different kinds of wrestlers, and like a, a little uh, an example is there's a guy named Evan Bourne who is in the WWE, but he traveled the the smaller circuit with me for years 
and he's five foot nine, 160 pounds. And everybody told him he would never make it. And now here he is on television because he does this extraordinary high flying style of wrestling. Now, what I have done is, is I've kind of hybrid uh, comedy into wrestling. So there's all different kind of paths. I understand some people think that you have to be huge. Um, but I, I like, again, there's, there's high flying, there's comedy, there's hardcore. Uh, oh, man, I shouldn't even get into that. <laughs> <laughs> there's all types of styles in, in wrestling. But, yes, you do have to be athletic and you do have to you, you do have to have a brain of some sort. More from the stage of the Second City in Chicago after a break. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're live on tape this week from the Second City in Chicago. My guest is professional wrestler and professional stand-up comedian Colt Cabana. It's interesting to me in, in watching you wrestle and also watching the wrestling in uh, the documentary that you made, the sort of line between the kind of like athletic performance, the uh, faux violence and actual violence... And the the laughs is completely like it's it's blurred to the point of disappearing and not even just when you're on stage like it's it's clear that everyone is getting a kick out of how ridiculous the whole thing is, um, whether or not they think that it's funny. You know what I mean? Like some people just think it's cool that something is this ridiculous um, some people think it's funny. Some people like to see, like, how do you even know when you're on stage, whether you're, or in the ring, I should say, um, whether you're doing a good job? Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, different wrestlers have different ways that they perceive they're doing a good job. I, I 100% uh, uh, measure it by the audience. And uh, I measure it my personal wrestling style by the smiles on the audience's face. How big are their smiles? Do they look like they're having a good time? Uh, and that's the beauty of wrestling because there's some guys who go out there, and I'll give you an example. There's a guy named Davey Richards. And, uh, you know, how, whether how fixed you think wrestling is, if you go watch Davey Richards kick somebody in the middle of the ring, you'll say, you know, holy, how, how is that guy, his opponent, walking? And he gets off on the people going, Oh my God! That's what. That's when the when the people are just can't believe how much pain his opponent are in. That's what he likes about wrestling. Now, me on the other hand, I'm the complete opposite. I measure it when there's a giant smile, everybody's having fun, and they're going to go home and they're going to love and they're going to know that uh, they came and they saw a fun show. And Colt Cabana was the fun part of it, and maybe Davy Richards was the guy that beat the living <laughs> out of somebody. <laughs> What, do you do you always get matched up in a match uh, when you're traveling with somebody else who's uh, gonna make people think that it's fun and funny, or is it sometimes a guy whose deal is that he you know wears a hat made out of barbed wire or whatever? Yeah, <laughs> uh, man. To I guess to to peel back the curtain in in my perfect world. 
I would love uh, they called a baby face a good guy. That's what I am. I would my perfect opponent would be a great heel or a bad guy because uh, the dichotomy is so amazing when you have such a great bad guy to play off of as a good guy and and that's the way we can tell a really fun story in the wrestling ring now sometimes you know a, a promoter will put me against maybe another good guy and it's it's a lot harder for me to tell that story um or just a guy that maybe isn't a very good does a good job at being a bad guy um, so again, that's when you have to kind of work harder and make sure you can entertain the crowd by working through those hurdles that are put in your way. This, uh, documentary called the wrestling road diaries is about, um, is about independent professional wrestling, mm-hmm. which is something that, you know, I, what little I knew about professional wrestling came from watching, you know, Mr. T and Andre the giant and Hulk Hogan when I was, you know, seven in 1988 or whatever. And um, this is a very this is a very different world. Tell me a little bit about you. You live here in Chicago. Um, tell me a little bit about like what you do from Thursday through Sunday in in a given week. Uh, well, first of all, with the movie, uh, and again, I, I talk about comedy a lot, and and, and how much you know I'm a, I'm a fan of the Son of Young America and Jordan Jesse Go. And, uh, you know, my podcast is basically, you know, this comedy world that I, I found to be amazing, especially the, the, the comedy podcast world. In a, and I felt I should start to jump into it in the wrestling world. And I take a lot of my stuff from the comedy world. And when I saw The Comedians of Comedy, the documentary, you know, with Penn Oswald, and just everything he was saying was saying, this is you, Colt. This is you. And that's kind of where the movie comes from. And the movie documents us. Getting in our cars, you know, when you see the WWE and, you know, Chris Jericho is on Dancing with the Stars now and, you know, and you see this life that these guys live, they make millions and millions of dollars. I make hundreds and hundreds of dollars, (laughs) if that. And this really documents it. You know, we're we're cramming ourselves in the road. I'll, uh, you know, depending on whether, you know, sometimes I'm lucky enough to fly Uh, early in my career. No, I was doing, you know, like I said, 15 hour road trips. Uh, we're all in a car, uh, four, sometimes five in a little car. Uh, Are you like a package deal? Because in this, in this, in this uh, documentary, it's the three of you traveling together. And is it that the is it that the three of you like present yourselves to possible promoters? Is like, hey, the three of us are got a car together. Um, we'll come out to do your show. A hundred. I know it's, but a hundred percent. And I know. The the parallels of, of comedians also, I think, is, is just, especially from the comics I've talked to, uh, it's unbelievable. And I know that's how it would work in, in the stand-up comedy world. Hey, let's all get in the car and we're going to Madison, Wisconsin to do a show to make 10 bucks. You know, that's how it works in the world of professional wrestling. Uh, I, you know, some promoter wants me. I call the promoter. I say, hey, I've got, you know, Sal. And Sal goes, hey, can you get Brian on the show? And, you know, and the promoters, you know, you see what you can do to get in it, to get on the show. That's kind of how it works. And so I guess that is the world of, you know, I guess packaging ourselves. And uh, but in order to do that, you know, you have to you have to be of the level to perform. So you uh, you were signed to the WWE, which is what was once called the WWF before they were sued by the World Wildlife Federation. (laughs) Um, It must have been just an awesome courtroom scene. Right. Um, But uh, you were signed to the you were signed to the WWE, and, and you were in you were in the WWE for a matter of months. Um, first of all, describe to me like what it means to be in the WWE if you're not Hulk Hogan or The Rock 
what do you do when you're like the lowest on the totem pole of of the big time professional wrestling? And I was. Oh man, Scotty Goldman was low. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, you know, I'd worked basically eight years of doing this life on the independent wrestling scene. I made a name for myself, and I traveled overseas. And I was lucky enough to get grab the attention of the WWE, and they signed me, and they sent me to what's their farm system. And at the time, it was in Louisville, Kentucky. And then uh, eventually that closed down. They shipped me down to Tampa, Florida. And uh, I was the, you know, I was making the, I guess, league minimum, as you would call it. And uh, it's, it's almost, ner- it's, it was nerve-wracking, very nerve-wracking, because I had spent so much time dedicating myself to this craft. Uh, you know, my time came and went. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> how, does it, how does it end? Sorry for asking you such a downbeat question, but how do you how do you get fired from the professional wrestling league? Oh, I man, the world of wrestling is so politically crazy. So I I was told create create the quote the word is creative has nothing for you. They have a creative team that they have there that write the professional wrestling, and they told me creative has nothing for you. I don't know the official answer. Usually, what happens is these guys will get fired from the WWE and they'll just be gone. They'll. Their, their careers are done or they just don't want to do it anymore. Uh, I had just been fired from my literally from my dream job. It was the only thing I ever wanted to do was be, in the, was be a WWE superstar. I got fired on a Friday. I made a phone call. Uh, I was in Tampa. I was in Los Angeles, California the next night wrestling on a pro wrestling gorilla show in, in California. This uh, is where professional wrestlers wrestle gorillas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, that, was, that was my... That was my uh, remedy. Was the only I could sit and be depressed and, and eat a large pizza, which I did. Uh, but <laughs> or I could go out and I can wrestle and continue. And and since the WWE, I've continued to wrestle and I've been. Tra- I've, I haven't been at this moment in time. I haven't been more busy. I'm wrestling anywhere from you know four times a, a week, which is more than a lot of the WWE guys are doing. I'm traveling all over the world in the past. Two months, I've been to Australia, Canada, Germany, Mexico, and uh, Schaumburg, Illinois. <laughs> and uh, my life's fantastic. So, you know, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not scaling it on whether I'm a WWE superstar or not. Uh, my, whether I'm successful is if I'm wrestling and having fun. Colt Cabana, thank you so much for taking the time and being on the Sunday in America. Yeah! Colt Cabana, much. ladies and gentlemen. Colt Cabana is a professional wrestler and stand-up comic. He stars in the two-hour and 40-minute long documentary, The Wrestling Road Diaries. Our next guest uh, is uh, one of Chicago's most uh, acclaimed musicians. Uh, He's had 10 LPs, the most recent of which was a tribute to Michael Jackson called Happy, uh, an album of Michael Jackson and Jackson 5 covers. Um, performing uh, for you with Nora O'Connor. Please welcome Robbie Folks. Winchester on down Now there's ten women wounded And two 
song from Robbie Folks, plus an interview with Peter Sagal of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me after the break. We're live on stage at the Second City. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's the Sound of Young America, live on tape from the stage of the Second City in Chicago. Uh, our next guest uh, was kind enough to wait literally two and a half years to appear on this program. Um, I, I, asked him to, I asked him to appear on the show years ago, and he graciously said, oh, I'm, I'm a listener, I'd be happy to, I would love to. And then I said, but I want to be clear, 
I'm asking you to appear on my next Chicago show <laughs> because I don't know if I'm going to be able to get a hold of Mr. T. <laughs> and he has, out of the kindness of his heart, held an indeterminate date open in his calendar for two years just out of pure, raw consideration for me and my show booking needs. Um, you, of course, know him as the uh, brilliant host of one of the most popular radio shows in America, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, uh, on which he uh, offers uh, cut-ups and uh, laugh-em-ups about the, <laughs> the current political scene um, to the delight of a uh, crowd of uh, hundreds uh, in a theater and millions around the world. Please welcome uh, someone who is just so much more successful at this than I am. Uh, Peter Sagal. Hello. I've come to enjoy your youthful demographic. <laughs> I, w I want to ask you about how you ended up in this career because it's – most people who get to this host position in public radio come to it through having been a, a reporter. Right. They or even, even before that, I mean, the classic story is actually that of Ira Glass, you, you're a friend of mine, who started – Yeah, we're friends with Ira Glass. We are. <laughs> I slid that in. Call him Ira. Have his to email. Yeah. <laughs> we hang sometimes. Yeah. I have hanged with him. Yeah. <laughs> a time. This is a, this is a true story. When I, um, when I first got a chance to try hosting Wait, What? Don't Tell Me, I had never had a job in radio before. And um, they said, well, we want you to come in and practice hosting this show. And I'm like, okay. And so I didn't know how to do it. I've never, I never hosted a radio show or anything, for that matter. How did you even get brought in? Um, because well, it was like, a, they, they, they like audition people for this, which in public radio is, the public radio, for those of you who, who don't get the chance to peek behind the curtain, is not an institution that has much interest in what is, in the rest of the broadcasting entertainment industry, known as talent. Yes. <laughs> There's no, there's no budget the, item for yeah, that. Yeah, it's more like competency and reliability and right. thoughtfulness or something is what they sort of yeah. they sort of triangulate from that and hope that they get talent. Yeah. But this was, with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it was a thing well, where... Well, th this is what happened. They, I can tell sort of the origin tale, this special origin issue of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, <laughs> was that uh, in the mid-90s, NPR and its sort of slow-moving corporate wisdom decided that they needed something to broadcast on the weekends that would appeal to people who listen to the news because people like that are the most valuable listeners to public radio. They're the most loyal. They donate the most. But was not itself news because there was already enough news and people weren't particularly interested in listening to that. And somebody had the bright idea of a, a news quiz. And so they hired Doug Berman, he of Car Talk, and they created various iterations over the years of attempts at this news quiz. And they finally did, as you say, national auditions for talent and I was swept up in this net. I was, at that time, a playwright and screenwriter in Brooklyn, New York. And, Did you uh, just respond to, like, a like classifieds ad? ad that said, Playwrights Wanted? 
host, nationally syndicated news quiz radio it was like It was like the ad for Shackleton's exhibition to the Arctic. It was like, wanted, you know, tough men for dangerous assignments. Survival... Not guaranteed, you know, must, like that. Must be appealing to the elderly and exactly. impervious to jibes regarding grammar. Precisely. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> Can reference Proust quickly. <laughs> uh, no, actually what happened was is they put out the word and somebody who knew me th- thought that I would be good. The way they put it to me, the friend who connected us, was well, they're looking for funny people to read a lot of newspapers. I thought of you. So I did all these auditions on the phone, and you have to understand, at this time I was a playwright living in Brooklyn, and like all normally constituted writers, I spent most of my time not writing. And um, what I would do instead of writing was listening to public radio. I would listen to public radio so loyally, I would listen to the second broadcast of like All Things Considered the whole way through, <laughs> waiting to see if they updated it, because they do that sometimes. Did you know that? They'll update a story for the second broadcast. They'll correct an error. And I was like that kind of obsessive... Listener, and so I really wanted to be on public radio, and um, so they hired me. I was part of the panel, and through this national uh, talent search, they had come up with all these people, some of whom whose names you know. And the original host was a gentleman named uh, Dan Coffey, who was most famous for being part of Duck's Breath Mystery Theater and uh, did a thing called Doctor Science on public radio. Uh, and he had all he had a tremendous resume. He was a com- comedy guy, public radio guy. He was perfect for it, but it didn't work very well. He was perfect for it in the sense that they found a guy who was both a comedy guy and yeah, a public I mean, radio guy. That, that's, that's a <laughs> very narrow him. Venn diagram intersection. Comedy, public radio. It's like not when you're looking for a pastry chef that does fencing right. for a small part in a movie. <laughs> exactly. You, you call the casting director and you I've say... I've got him. Anyway, so that didn't work. So they were very desperate. I mean, it was kind of sad. They had done this enormous talent search the first time and they had gotten this guy and it didn't work and so for the second talent search they basically looked around the room and they said you give it a try and that brought it us to that moment I was describing a moment ago where I'm sitting there in front of a microphone and I'm now practicing hosting a show on radio which I've never done before and so I naturally emulated my favorite public radio host Ira Glass and so I was like hello I'm Peter Sagal. This is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. (laughs) Today in the show, questions about the week's news. And that's as far as I got before the producer was in the talkback going, no, stop, don't. And pretty much that's it. I mean, I, I, that, th- those were my dues. That was that moment of paying the dues, basically. When, when you got offered that job, um, it meant, I mean, this is, uh, this is I, I imagine, a, a really intensive job because you have a relatively small staff for a weekly comedy program. Yeah. Um, so you have to be actively involved in the creation of the show on a week-to-week basis. And what was it like for you to take that big left turn in your career and say, oh, gosh, I guess maybe I'm not a theater person anymore who writes plays in Brooklyn I'm a public radio host out of Chicago. It was weird in a whole bunch of ways, some of which were great and some of which were, were, were sort of distressing. Uh, one of the hardest things for me was to understand, and this is one of the things that Doug Berman was very good about teaching me, is that in the theater, you want to be different every time. I mean, the worst thing you can say about somebody, particularly a playwright, is that he, he or she is just repeating themselves. Oh, it's the same old play. Oh, it's the same old play. You know, Peter Schaffer is writing yet another play with a with a 
cynical old man and a beautiful young man who has this intense emotional relationship with, great. What's he going to do this time? Blind a horse, write a symphony, who cares? <laughs> so you don't want to be that guy. You want to be, you know, you're, so it's kind of, I can't be, I, can't, I did that once, I can't do it again. Radio, you want to actually be the same every week in a, in a significant way. And the example I use is Rush Limbaugh, who is probably the most successful radio person of our time. And the, the reason he is so successful, like him it's or not... It's okay. If he says his name, he won't suddenly appear. <laughs> no, He's not Beetlejuice. No. Actually, what's interesting... People in the audience gasping. Yeah, I, I, I love it. If I say it three times, though, you have to be careful. So the reason Rush Limbaugh is so successful is because people who turn on Rush Limbaugh get Rush Limbaugh every week. It's the same thing. It's ex- and that's... His genius. He they presents... tune in for excellence in broadcasting. Exactly. <laughs> a talent alone for God. And that's what they get. They, uh, they want him to repeat himself. And so one of the things I had to learn about doing the radio show was that people tune in to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me for a particular kind of experience. And they don't want to hear us say the same words every week. And they don't want to hear the same jokes every week. Although, Lord knows, we get away with that sometimes. <laughs> but they want to hear the same people doing the sort of same thing. And I had to learn how to... That in the course of every week, it wasn't about making it new, but it was about making the same thing good. And that was sort of a, a difficult transition for me. It's a little bit like a sitcom in that sense. In the, in the, the, the thing yeah. that people love about a sitcom... Is nothing changes. Is, yeah, exactly. That they're, that they're visiting this group of people that they know. And because of the intimacy of radio, which is probably its, its best positive attribute, right. um, it, you know, people feel like people feel a really close attachment to things. And when they're different, it upsets them. Tremendously so. It's like a spinal tap deciding to play the, you know, different kind of music. And people are like, what? It's not what we want. We want what we're expecting from you. And so one of the things I had to learn was to sort of do that and and provide that while at the same time making it interesting and, and, and for ourselves. It's the Sound of Young America, live on tape from the stage of the Second City in Chicago with the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Mr. Peter Sagal. Wait, wait, don't tell me is uh, today uh, one of the most successful shows on on public radio. And I don't say that as mere puffery. It's literal fact. Um, And it's one of the relatively few, uh, relatively new, super successful public radio programs. Yes. And it's 13 years old. Yeah. (laughs) So there you go. Um, I mean, there are newer semi-failed public radio programs. (laughs) I, I, I'm over, I think of you as semi-successful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter. You're very welcome. Um, but uh, it, this, was, this was not, uh, I think, either um, creatively or audience-wise, perfect from the jump. Oh, God, no. So tell me a little bit about what was... I, I think maybe memories of recent Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me have supplanted the beginning in your yeah. mind. But from your perspective, what, what was going on at the beginning? And how, how is it different from well, what's happening now? Well, this is what now? happened. I mean, comedy in public radio is very hard. There's not a lot of history there. So you couldn't, as you referenced, bring in all the people who had done all the incredibly successful public radio comedy shows of the past. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no, like, you know, when, when The Simpsons started, they had, you know, James Brooks to come in. and Like, this is how you do TV comedy. There's nobody like that. Uh, except for Doug Berman. Um, he's it. And so all these producers and all these writers were doing stuff that they didn't know how to do. Uh, and, and this is a, such a vivid memory. This was the first show broadcast, January 3rd, 1998. It started with Dan Coffey, the host, um, introducing us all. And then he said, Peter, listen to this. And you hear screaming. 
Like, ah, ah, ah. Peter, what was that? And I'm like, they just played screaming. It can't actually be people screaming in terror. It must be something funny. So I made some lame guess. And he said, no, actually, it was people screaming in terror. That was tape from a... Apparently, there had been this plane that had gone through insanely severe turbulence. (laughs) And somebody had videotaped it. So this was on the news. That's what they chose to open the first show with. (laughs) People screaming in terror. That's a comic instinct, right? The reaction to the show when it came on the air here in Chicago, and it was only on in a few, sta- few cities, Chicago, of course, being one of them, was, was so vicious. So, I mean, because public radio people are, as I'm sure you all know, because you are these people I'm about to discuss, vicious people. <laughs> who are, it, it's, it's like, they're like religious wars. People are so attached to what they love, and they so hate what they don't know. And everything, everything must supplant something right. else. And if you're so when you're a new show, you have to face off against all the fans of Dr. Zorba Pastor on your health right. um, that you bumped or yeah, calling the, all pets. Or Peruvian nose flute hour with yeah. Lou Gormley, whatever the hell it was that got canceled so your show could go on, all those people will hate you till they die. Or you, which they hope comes first. And so we were dealing with a lot of hatred, and we didn't have a lot of... We weren't generating a lot of goodwill, so it was really tough. And, and Doug Berman basically bought it, using his credibility as the producer of Car Talk, bought us some time. He's like, let everybody know in the station, in the system, you know, we've got a new host, we're, gonna, we're making it better, don't you worry. And I remember we had this meeting in Chicago when I arrived in May of 98, and we sat around in this room, and we're like, well, what do you want to do with this? Do you want to make it into like a serious... Because there was always the instinct to make it into a serious news quiz because public radio listeners more than anything else want to feel smug. <laughs> that's their... That's, their, we've that's done why da- they always laugh at the setups. Exactly. And, and, and we thought, you know, we'll do a quiz and they can answer the questions and feel good about themselves. Um, or do you just want to like use the quiz as an excuse to totally goof around? And obviously we chose... I hope obviously we chose the latter. And... We just kind of made it up as we went. For ex- to, to give you one example of many, uh, I was on a subway platform in New York City with Adam Felber, and we were talking about the show, which at that time was in its early and struggling stages. And uh, Titanic had come out a few months before, and it was still in the air. And, and one of us, I do not remember who, said, wouldn't it be funny to hear Carl say, Jack, put your hands on me. <laughs> <laughs> and we both thought it was really funny. And from that conversation was born Who's Carl This Time, where we had Carl Castle trying to imitate people from the news. And so that was one element that we put in. And then we added other elements, and we figured out what we wanted to do with the celebrity guests. And so we all sort of put it together on the fly. And because no one was really listening, no one was noticing. The thing, <laughs> the thing that I remember as a really clear line of demarcation in the history of the show was that originally, and this strikes me as like the public radio-iest idea of how to make comedy ever, right. um, everyone was in, in studios and in different places. Yes, this was the, when the show began, and it's funny, we did this for seven years, and I still don't believe it, that we did it, because <laughs> it was so dumb. They had Nothing, tr- by the way, helps comic timing more right. than an ISDN line. Exactly. <laughs> not being able to see anybody and not having an audience. Uh, w- the idea they had tried doing it in front of a live audience in one of the various pilot iterations, and they decided it was it was unwieldy. Uh, it didn't make good radio. Um, Doug Berman hates live audiences, or did at the time. He felt that they what happens when you put radio people in front of a live audience is I'll start playing to you, 
here to make you laugh and make you happy rather than the X million of people who might be listening to the radio show and thus I am disserving them. And um, it didn't work because who's laughing? We're just laughing at each other's jokes. It didn't make much sense. And we did our first show in front of a live audience in January of 2000 in Salt Lake City of all places. And we didn't know if it was going to work. And people like, liked it and they laughed. And this funny thing happens if people might laugh, people in front of you might laugh if you say something funny, which is that you try a lot harder to say something funny. It's like porpoises jumping for herring. <laughs> I jump a little higher. And it, it was immediately apparent. I mean, in retrospect, of course we should do it in front of a live audience. But it took four years, five years, before we were able to figure out a way to do it every week because we had to change everything. We had to fly people in instead of connecting them. We had to get a theater. We had to change our whole way of doing it. That was a big, uh, that was a big sort of turning point in the difference between the show being a show that was successful enough to get along and the show being a show that was, uh, you know, a tentpole program yes. in public radio station schedule. It was, it was a huge difference. We had about a million, maybe more listeners, and yet no one knew who we were. And then we started doing the show in front of a live audience, and all of a sudden, everybody knew know who we were. And it was, it's mysterious to me for that reason, because nothing else changed. But all of a sudden, people were interested in us. We, we alluded briefly to uh, the public radio audiences, and I'm exempting both the people who are here and the people who are listening on the radio right now from this. <laughs> but their enthusiasm for uh, self-backpats, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> self-backpats. I like yeah. that. I haven't heard that phrase. Um, and I can only imagine that it must be tough to, you know, just as John Stewart has talked about how weird it is to go out in front of this crazy audience that, like, starts laughing the minute he opens his mouth. It must be weird to get those laughs that sometimes come on a, a setup or something. You're like, no, I wrote a joke for this. The joke wasn't just that you heard that story earlier yes. this week. <laughs> we... we um... We, we, have a, we have a phrase, and I don't, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's like clapause, you know? <laughs> and it's like they're clapping just because you said something that they agree with, which is cheap. And it's really easy. Especially when do. it's just points of fact. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it was yeah, so there t- were budget negotiations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, budget. <laughs> Actually, the worst, part, the worst part, it was so easy. You knew for like eight years doing our show that if things were going really badly... I could just lean to the microphone and go, George Bush, that dumbass. And people would go, yay! <laughs> and it's so, it's just, it's really too tempting. Tempt- it's tempting <laughs> sometimes. And you just don't want to go there because it's too easy. Do you, do you get these uh, really intense public radio reactions oh, God, still? Yes. We do. We get, we get the same letter every week. Um, I'm not sure if this is what you mean, but this is sort of the experience. The letter is, uh, dear wait, wait, don't tell me. Uh, first, a... A, a, a claiming of credentials. I have been listening for years, and I think you guys are great, and I think you're so funny. Uh, I.e., I have a sense of humor. I'm not one of those stiff-necked people, okay? <laughs> but this week you made fun of X, whatever X is. And you just have to understand that's not funny. It's not ever funny. How dare you? <laughs> my, my, my favorite part is you're, you're NPR. You're supposed to be above making fun of that you need to make an on-air apology. Sincerely yours. And we have gotten letters in which X has been everything from the current president, whoever it may be, uh, to health care, to natural disasters, to things like the goth community. That was probably my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, there's like a three-page, you know, like 
three-page letter. It was like, I'm a goth, and you made these jokes. Basically, I said young people who walk around and amuse themselves by pretending to be dead, I think. And they were not amused. But my favorite one of all time was we had Tom Hanks on the show some years ago. And he, Tom was telling this story about um, how he and his brothers were very competitive playing games. And in his story, one of his brothers called him a drooly head. Hey, you drooly head. I got a letter defending the drooling community. I kid you not. That those ter- and I, it's like I listened to your show for years, and I think you're very, very funny, but this year I heard one of your guys say drooly head, and you have to understand there are people who have uncontrollable drooling, and it's not funny. And I never write back to these emails, but I wrote back and I said, you have to understand, if we draw the line at not saying drooly head, that's the end of comedy in the Western world. <laughs> There's nothing left you can say if you can't say drooly head. So. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time My to be on pleasure. the San Diego Thank America. you. I love Peter your show. Sagal, it's an honor guys. to be here. Good night, everybody. Peter Sagal is the host of NPR and Chicago Public Radio's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which you can hear on your favorite local public radio station, probably even this one, and probably not that far from this one on your weekend schedule. You can also get it free as a podcast in iTunes. Before we go, let's have one more song from Robbie Folks and special guest Nora O'Connor. Thank you, Jesse. All right. That's a good uh, excuse for us to do this gospel tune right here since it's uh, Wednesday night. And uh, uh, this one's by the great uh, Flatten Scruggs, the old uh, bluegrass act that you recall from the uh, mid-40s since you're a young audience. I'm sure you remember Flatten Scruggs. And uh, Nora and I are going to try our hand on this one right here. Take me in your lifeboat. Take me in your lifeboat It'll stand the raging storm 
Robbie Folks can be found online at robbiefolks.com and Nora O'Connor at noraoconnor.com. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided to us by Dan Wally, our producer, Julia Smith, our editor, Nick White. Our intern on the show is Lindsay Palmer. If you have thoughts about the show, you can share them on our forum at forum.maximumfun.org, or you can just email them to me. This is my actual email address, jesse at maximumfun.org. You can get all of our shows absolutely 100% for free in iTunes or on our website, MaximumFun.org. And when I say all of our shows, I mean not just every Sound of Young America, but also our comedy shows like Jordan, Jesse, Go, My Brother, My Brother and Me, Stop Podcasting Yourself, and even Judge John Hodgman. It's all online at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter, Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.